Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by focusing on just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. Today is the day, Allie. It is mystery guest day. We are going to have the reveal. How are you feeling, my friend? I'm so excited. I'm so ex- I'm so excited. I could not sleep last night. And really? I mean that. Oh, my God. I really couldn't sleep oh, last night. No, no, don't be sorry. <laughs> I, I was so excited. We, <laughs> it was really funny. We, um, you know, I go to bed very early. So I, I, I put on my pajamas and I got into bed and I was like, okay. It could be it could be a lot of different people. And Pete said, "Okay, uh, well, how does that make you feel? I was like, it's making me feel anxious. And he said, we should just have fun. And I said, "Okay, but I should start Googling people. Who could it be? And he said, there's that's a lot of people. And I was like, it it is a lot of people. People is a lot of people. People is a lot of people. And so he said, you know, it it, it really it, it, it could it could not be people, too. And I was like, "Okay, who can we take off the list? And he started naming like dead people. I was like, "That's not helpful." That's <laughs> All the people not that ever existed helpful. before. <laughs> yes, I mean, we know it's not Richard Nixon. That's not helpful right now. Um, so I fell asleep, and then I woke up at one, and I was like, "Ooh, okay." And then my mind started reeling, and I thought, "Okay, okay, nope, got to go back to bed." And then I woke up at three, and I thought, "Okay." Yep. Nope. I'm awake. So I got up and I started like doing, I started cleaning things and (laughs) folding laundry and, you know, conducting correspondence and uh, doing my bills and my banking. So I got a lot done today and, and here I am and I'm ready to go teach. I am ready to go teach. I am. I feel really bad. You do not need to feel bad. (laughs) I am awesome. I am awesome when I am I'm under, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, you know Wait, what? So you, you've been up since three and you think you're gonna be ready to teach? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Look, when I interviewed for this job here, I, uh, I had the flu, Pete and I got the flu like 48 hours before I had oh the job gosh. interview. Yeah. And I thought, Oh God, Hey, do I need to tell anybody? He's like, I don't know. I was like, mm, okay, well, I guess it'll be fine. So I came after after just having the world's worst flu and i felt better ish and um and i was so excited to teach that it just propped me up it just kept me going i was john on just adrenaline and as soon as that teaching ended and i got to my job talk i started feeling sick again and i thought oh no wait this is not good and uh and i didn't make it lawrence i didn't make it uh i actually said i can't believe i'm saying this but i i, I I think I have to. I think I have to go home. And home, by the way, was four hours away, right? Because job <laughs> job interviews take two days and a whole lot of stuff. So um, they were so nice and understanding. And and somebody started walking me. A couple of people started walking me back to my car, which was across campus. And I didn't make it. I didn't make it. I, oh I had to. God. I know. I had to, <laughs> we were walking across campus. I was like, "Is there a bathroom along the way?" We darted into the Dauphin Humanities Building, and where I promptly threw up in the wastebasket of the chair of the English department. Uh, oh I did. And then passed out in the women's bathroom. Uh, they called an ambulance and took me to the hospital. And as it turned out, I had passed a gallstone in the middle of my job talk. So, oh my goodness. Uh huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. So, you know, the ambulance came, they had to go get to the department chair. It's <laughs> like emergency situation where everybody's running around like, oh, no, the job, the job candidate went down. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I called Pete as they were loading me into the ambulance. And, and he was at that point, he was the adjutant general at West Point. And he picked up the phone. He's like, hi, or shouldn't you be in your job talk? I was like, I'm really sick. They're taking me to the hospital. And the ambulance driver's like, you have to close your phone. I'm like, I got to go by. And so he just stood up and just screamed like, find all the hospitals in a hundred mile radius. <laughs> like all of these like soldiers are running around, like trying to find me. Um, and so we, we got, we got to the emergency room and, 
and and like the whole department came. It was the sweetest thing in the entire room of entire world. And so while they were in with me, I was I was very well socialized. I was like, you know, I think this probably muddies the waters a little bit. They were like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. We'll figure all this out later. And as soon as they left, I just grabbed a nurse. I was like, get me drugs. This hurts so much, you know. And so, and so, <laughs> I had to. We had. I had to just think really quickly on my feet because. I, I couldn't go back to I couldn't go back to a job interview, no. and I called my sister, who was a, a um, social worker at Belmont, which is a psychiatric hospital at, in Philadelphia, and their hold music was advertising for Belmont's facilities. And so I would call and say, you know, can you please page Monica? And when they did, you know, it was like do 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 do. Do you have a drug or alcohol addiction? If so, Belmont is the place for your inpatient oh facilities. And I was like, I do not, but I might if you don't get my sister on the phone right now. <laughs> she hung up on me twice. She was so upset. She was like crying. I was like, don't put me on hold. Don't put me on hold. <laughs> so we figured it out. She came to get me. And I was so sad because I really like this place so much. But they, they brought me back for a second interview. I think they were wondering what would happen. Uh, you know, whether like a SWAT team was going to come in. Uh, she made the amputation this time. Exactly. Like, you know, is she going to just set stuff on fire? You know, like what, what's what's next? Calamity Jane, Dr. Calamity Jane. <laughs> they felt um, so bad for you. They gave you a job. And they really did. And it's been, you know, it's been a good run ever since. So if I can operate through that, I can operate through um, having very, very little sleep. And this is all, you know, being tired is all in the name of, a truly delightful surprise that you are giving me because I'm assuming that this is a very good surprise. I don't think you'd surprise me with, you know, like my college boyfriend or something like that. <laughs> Welcome to the show. The one teacher who hated you. In elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's in prison. <laughs> <laughs> well, Allie, I do think that you are going to like today's show. So are you oh. ready for the big reveal? I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Okay. I'm going to put, I'm gonna, okay. So I'm going to put a blindfold on. I'm going to put a blindfold on and then. All right. You got to get out of those glasses there. Okay. Yep. Yep. All right. And yep. while you're doing that, I want to thank Melissa Folds and Mario Zangla and Neil Connolly, all of whom helped produce this episode today. I also want to read some of the guesses that we got from our listeners. We, I wanted to read all of them on air, but we got far too many uh, to read on air. We got a lot of guesses, but uh, I want to read a few of them. Uh, I'll read 10 of them. So uh, Melanie guessed Taylor Swift, which would have been awesome. Uh, Carol guessed Oprah. I've got a lot of Bulwark guesses. So TJ guessed Tim Miller from the Bulwark. Uh, Benjamin guessed Bill Crystal from the Bulwark. And Leah guessed Sarah Longwell from the Bulwark. Also, that was, that was actually Allie's guess. Uh, David guessed Tom Nichols, the author of The Death of Expertise, who's been on our show before. Uh, let's see, Alyssa guessed that it'd be one of Allie's daughters, which would have been funny. <laughs> um, Val guessed Lily Anna Mason, who's a political scientist who Allie loves. Peyton guessed that it was Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN. And DeAndre, this is a good guess, he guessed Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie. But none of those guesses are correct. Are you ready, Allie? I am ready. Our mystery guest today is broadcasting live from Fenwick Island, Delaware, <gasps> author Matthew Norman. No! Oh, my God! No, 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 no! Oh, my God! It's Matthew Norman! Oh, my God! It's Matthew Norman! Oh, my gosh! Hi! Hi! I will try not to sound like a stalker <laughs> right now. No, you can Hi. sound like both. It's fine. Oh, wow! I have tried so hard not to send you like direct messages and stuff. So, um, so I have to, I have to calm down. First of all, Lawrence, thank you very much. Oh my gosh, you're in Fenwick right now. I have, I am made of questions. I, uh, am, I'm going to turn my mic off and you two can just yeah, chat. Okay, for the thank hour. you. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Um, Thank you for nice. joining us. I, I don't think I I've just... spoken yet. Can you guys hear me? Just to make sure. Yes. I'm not yes. Okay, good. Uh -huh. And oh. what's funny is I anticipated you not recognizing me because 
I don't look really much like my airbrushed, professionally taken author <laughs> picture. So I came with props. I imagine this moment of you just staring at this sort of middle <laughs> And so I was like, I was going to be like, uh, I wrote these. Um, <laughs> yes, so, yeah. you did. Okay. Yes, so, you did. Oh, so my gosh. Over, we got over the hurdle of recognition. So here we are. <laughs> oh, I am Oh my gosh, this is the best surprise in the entire world. Oh, this is the best gift. Oh, wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Matthew Norman, welcome. Mm. Welcome to the show. Um I I have loved your writing forever and ever and always. And um and this is your fourth book. It is. Um yeah. Uh, it's all together now. Um, it is so good. It's so beautiful. It takes place in Fenwick, which is uh, right in between Bethany. And it's like right at the edge of Ocean City. But it's not like Ocean City, Maryland, the way that most people think of Ocean City, Maryland, which is, you know, like down where everybody gets drunk and arrested and stuff like that. Um, right. <laughs> so um, so I want to ask you all of these questions about all of your books. But um, but. First, I want to know. I, I guess I want to know. You used to be an you used to be an ad guy in Baltimore. Did, yeah. Are you from Baltimore originally? I'm not. I am from Omaha, Nebraska originally. I'm very Midwestern, and people who don't know me don't realize that. But people who know me get it right away. I just think I have sort of a Midwestern vibe. But um, so I grew up in Nebraska. Went to the University of Nebraska, and when I was I was an advertising major, but I always wanted to be a novelist. But my dad gave me the advice that. They don't, uh, nobody pays you to want to be a novelist, right? So, I, <laughs> and so I, I was an advertising major and who wanted to be a novelist and that's exactly what I did. So I worked in advertising for like 20 years, most recently at Under Armour in Baltimore. And um, I, left, I left Nebraska uh, when I was like 23 or 24, kind of almost sight unseen because I wanted uh, just a bigger city. And I wanted to go to grad school. So I moved to Arlington, Virginia, and I went to MF, got my MFA at George Mason. And so I've been on the East Coast ever since, which was July 15th was actually 20 years since I left Omaha. So I'm a, I'm a full-fledged East Coaster now. Okay, wait, I can't remember. you. So the book where um, the mom was a right-wing radio talk show host, was that Nebraska? That was. That was Omaha. I wrote, okay. my, go, I, I wrote my Going Back to Omaha novel. That was my second book, yeah. Got it. Okay. Oh, because your first one was um, violence. Yes. Uh, domestic violence. Domestic Got it. Violence, okay. Yeah. So you said you said you went to college for advertising, but you always knew you wanted to be a novelist, like forever since you were a child. Totally. I, I'm one of those. I feel like there are two types of writers. There are the writers who sort of stumble into it and think, "Oh, well, maybe I'll try writing a book." And then there are the writers like me who, when I was six years old, I was writing little stories uh, in pencil and reading them to my parents. It was the, it's, it's the only thing I've ever wanted to be. And so I sort of built my entire life around becoming that. And uh, yeah, so I had, a, I had a really nice run in advertising. I enjoyed it. I was an advertising copywriter. I was, so I, I wrote for a living always. But, uh, and I would write on weekends and nighttime and all that. And uh, eventually uh, with my third novel, I had a kind of a two book deal, which offered me a bit of a runway, you know, so I was like, I'm going to get out of corporate America and just do this full time. That's fantastic. Oh, wow. I took a wrong turn in Baltimore and I stumbled by accident into the Under Armour campus, oh, which wow. felt like I was on the, the set of Spencer for hire. Like it felt <laughs> it was weird. Like it was it down by huge. the it has its own dock and it just it was very I don't know. It was sort of dystopian. Um, yeah, it is a huge campus, and it's tough to get off that campus. You keep taking turns into different, like, oh, well, this is the picture of Michael Phelps. You know, it's like it's, <laughs> right. it's, it's vast, and it's even bigger now. I left a couple of years ago, but it, it's a pretty. Va- it takes up pretty much a whole neighborhood down in uh, down by the water in Baltimore. Okay, so you, um, how did you? Okay, so your so your latest book, all together mm-hmm. now, the kids grow up in Baltimore and summer in Fenwick. How did you discover Fenwick, which to me feels like a tiny little place that most people, unless they grew up around either Baltimore or D.C., wouldn't necessarily know about? How did you discover it? Yeah. So I grew up in Nebraska, as I said. My wife grew up in upstate New York. And so her job brought her to Baltimore where we met. I was living in Arlington at the time. We had mutual friends. So Baltimore sort of our home base. And we learned about all of the you know, Maryland and Delaware beaches from our friends who were, you know, more local than us. And so we started coming here and sometimes we would go to Bethany on vacations. And when we got to wanting 
to buy a, you know, buy some place to, to kind of have a, a place out here. We just kind of went around the beaches and looked, looked at for sale signs and we found this place and in Fenwick, for those of for those listening who don't really kind of know the details there, it's the smallest of those little beaches, like a little, little tiny beach town next to a bunch of big kind of more, much more touristy beach towns. And so you mm-hmm. get the best of both worlds. It's like this quaint little neighborhood here, but just a couple of miles in either direction, you have tons of restaurants and boardwalks and all that. But um, yeah, so we discovered it and we come here all the time, especially with COVID. You know, sometimes we spend weeks and weeks here at a time, which is great. Is it easier? I know you write a lot about uh, places you've been and you have, you know, rich experience with. Is it easier to write about places that you have an experience with that helps you flush out characters and, and, and settings and those kinds of things? Totally. I love doing that. And almost all of my books, nearly every location, even ones that are just sort of casually mentioned in all four of my novels, the vast majority of them actually really do exist. And I always find, for me, it sort of grounds my imagination where I'm describing something specific. And if you know that place, great. It's like sort of a little added bonus for the reader. But if you don't know that place, it doesn't really matter. I'm just, I might as well just be describing right. a fictional place anyway. So I love uh, just grounding my settings in reality. And, you know, the restaurants and stuff that my four characters go to, the Dairy Queen, uh, they all exist in real life. However, the Dairy Queen just got shut down. Did it really? Yeah, it did. They sold it. They sold it's going to be uh, a taco place now, I think. Okay, huh. I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. Yeah, probably. <laughs> that, uh, that Dairy Queen had seen better days. It never opened up after COVID. I think they were having trouble staffing it, and they just never opened. And so it sat there yeah. sort of like uh, a, a relic in an apocalypse movie. And then and just the <laughs> other day, they tore down the, the sign. It was like a little moment of silence that I had as I was walking by. But uh, it's going to be a taco <laughs> place now. So, wow, yeah. that's pretty amazing. Okay, that leads me to that leads me to my my biggest question, um, which is the house in Altogether Now is that based on a real house? Because I have two thoughts of which house that was, if it's a real house. Okay, I'm about to disappoint you. It's not a real house. Ah. Oh man, I she spent the better part of an episode yeah. describing really trying did. to find that house. I really did. <laughs> so. You are kind of living this fantastic novel writing life and also raising children and mm-hmm. a corgi. Is that true from your Twitter feed? Is that right? I have a corgi and I also have a yellow lab. I have two dogs. The corgi is by far the most photogenic dog. Corgis are <laughs> they, Poor they lab. It, it's Instagram. Instagram is just is just a corgi. Corgis have really had their moments since the invention of Instagram. But um, <laughs> so I have two dogs and I have two daughters, uh, almost 12 and almost 10. Um, so yeah, I'm living the life. That's fantastic. Can I ask you a question before we move on from uh, the location stuff? I can, I can see how writing about different locations um, can, can help you really add some meat to the bone of these places and really give them a good feel and, and, and um, authenticity, et cetera. I always wondered how do you how do you get yourself into the head of a character to write dialogue of a person whose perspective you don't have, right? I mean, like how, like you give them diff- different types of vocabulary and perspectives, and and, and, and like I couldn't do that. It would, it would all sound like Lawrence Eppert. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, it's funny you say that because dialogue writing. I think every writer has a couple of things that they're just sort of naturally better at than other things. And so dialogue has always been something that's kind of come naturally to me. However, dialogue is about writing and rewriting and rewriting and saying it aloud over and over again. So I'm a very out loud kind of writer, especially when it comes to dialogue. So I'm sitting here saying aloud my characters back and forth to each other. And early drafts always kind of all the characters kind of always sound the same. And often that is just me. That's just what I sound like. And so going through again and again and again and starting to hone a certain personality and, uh, you know, speech patterns for different people. So, you know, all of writing is about rewriting, but especially dialogue, especially dialogue. And you just do it over and over again until it sounds like a real person as opposed to just a different version of me, you know. That seems like it would get confusing. Do you have to write that all down, like develop a rubric and say, okay, this person has this personality and, you know, talks in this way and has this vocabulary. Like, how do you keep all of that straight? I think versions of that probably exist in my head, but I, I don't have stuff written down like that. I mean, I, out, I outline and I have a nice um, uh, 
note card system on a bulletin board in my office back in Baltimore where I have the whole okay. plot, we'll have the whole plot laid out. Um, but it, I don't have like some unabomber looking (laughs) with yarn connecting everything. (laughs) Nothing nothing that elaborate. Sometimes I wish I did. Like I'll see movies about writers and I'll have these elaborate things or like murder detectives or whatever, but, um, I don't have anything like that. Well, wait, actually I've got a question. Do you plot it out to the end? I mean, so this last book was a little bit different in that it was, it was, really sad and we knew it was sad at the beginning like sure. we, you know from jump we knew it was going to be really sad um do you did you go into this saying like this is going to be sad and i know how this is going to go um did you just start writing it and think like you know what like covid kind of in a sad place like let's make this puppy sad so it's funny about that i pitched the book to my agent and then eventually my editor without sort of blindly not acknowledging that it was very sad, right? And so mm-hmm. I pitched it, and I'm like, and hey, it'll be like my other books, and this guy's dying. It'll be great. And, <laughs> and my my editor, my editor was my editor was like, well, you know that this is a turn for you. Like this is this is a sad thing. And I was like, oh no, it'll be a comedy. And then as I was writing, as I was writing, I had to come to terms with what I was writing, and I had to really own it and dig in there. And so. I am an outliner, especially as I've moved along in my career. Like the first two books I didn't outline. I just sort of had, you know, benchmarks in my head and I would just sort of go out and write them. And consequently, they took me freaking years to write. And and so I I realized that to be more efficient and to be more effective with those early drafts, outlining is really the way to go. And so I started doing that. But I had everything outlined and I had all these sad moments ahead, but I was sort of denying to myself that they would be sad, you know, but... uh, Eventually, as I started writing them, I realized that I had to lean in. And my natural instinct as a writer, just as a person in general, is always to really lean on comedy and try. When I feel a moment getting too serious, I try to be a, I try to be funny, and mm-hmm. that is an annoying personality trait sometimes, you know. <laughs> and I, I had to do that with a book. I had to go against my own instincts to be funny and have a character say something funny uh, in moments and just let the moment exists in its sadness. What's the most difficult part of a story to outline? Like, is the, is the ending going to be the hardest or like, what's the different, like the middle of a novel is a vast, vast wasteland in your your imagination. (laughs) I I feel like every novelist would say that exact same thing because when you get a novel idea, it's almost always about a beginning. You have like this runway Mm -hmm. in your own mind. You're like, okay, and this will happen. Then it'll be great. And then you have the ending. I always do. I always have this idea. Okay, and then there's going to be this moment. The the middle. Is so you know, tough. you know the ending generally when you when you have an idea. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, the okay. middle is tough because you have to. And the way I started thinking about middles because they're very very difficult is you have to earn that ending. So everything in the middle is about right. preparing the reader, moving the characters along in their journey to be able to earn that ending and to have it feel legitimate and right and, you know, I- inevitable in a way that feels legitimate, you know, and right. I, I have never written some you know, crazy shock ending and they've all been endings that I think uh, hopefully feel believable and a, a little bit inevitable, you know, but not predictable is I guess the hope, you know, definitely not predictable, but I mean, but certainly um, believable and, if not cathartic, um, uh, resonant, you know, and, and it's interesting that you said that outlining made your process go faster because I feel like the, like the first two books, there was a longer Delta between domestic violets and we were all damaged. And then, um, last couple standing came out and then I thought, Oh gosh, I'm going to have to wait a really long, Oh my God, there's another book out. I'm so excited. This is really fast. Um, and so that's fantastic that it makes it go faster for those of us who are super fans of yours. Does this then put pressure on you to kind of keep putting out more, putting out more books? I mean, you know, it's, it, I doesn't be, and I'll tell you why. So along with the fact that I didn't outline my first two books, my wife and I also had two little kids like right away. So we had like these uh-huh. almost, you know, they're, our daughters are close in age, like 23 months apart. 
So I was working full-time at Under Armour. I had two babies, essentially, and I was trying to write novels. And I, novels I didn't outline. So those things, like, especially We're All Damaged, my second book, every sentence of that book is written at night by a tired, tired person. I, you know, uh, I, got it. I think back to what that was like, and it was tough. And I was experimenting with different ways to write. Like, I would write at night, like late. And then I, I had this experiment where I bought... I found online a vibrating alarm watch because if I set my alarm, I would wake my wife up and screw her whole day up. So I had a vibrating alarm watch that I would set for 4.30 in the morning and I would get up and try to write for like two hours before I went to work. That did not last long and did not work because I was just like, I'd walk up there just like a zombie, you know, pouring caffeine into my face, you know. But um, yeah, so I, I don't feel a lot of pressure because now that I, my kids are a little bit older, I'm outlining. I feel like I've gotten better at just the it's just writing novels, just the nuts and bolts of it. And I don't work. I don't have a full time job anymore. So this is what I do. Like basically every day, my one intellectual pursuit is just writing this book. And so naturally, they're just going to come much faster now. I'm done with these five year you know intervals for sure. So you you found your way. You always wanted to be a writer, and you found your way to doing this for a living. And you've described your process being different over the years and sort of honing it. So if, if, you were, if you were looking back, if you could send a letter back to yourself when you were first starting your career, right, to a young writer, like what's one of the biggest things you've learned that you really would have liked to have known when you got into the business? That's, that's weird to say business. Got into the field, the craft, whatever it is I should be saying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a business. It's all of those things that you said. I mean, as much yeah. of an art and as much of a craft as it is, it really is a business. I mean, you have to pitch it. You know, it reminds me a lot of advertising. And I think that my temperament and uh, way of working really does coincide with my years of advertising because it's always about pitching ideas and having an idea that you absolutely are passionate about and making somebody say yes to that idea, you know? Pitching an idea, a book, a novel idea to an editor or your agent is not different. You know, you have to give them enough to know what you're talking about and sell it with passion and have them say yes, because there are very few writers in the world who are famous and successful enough not to have to go through that process I just described of pitching mm -hmm. an idea and getting somebody to say yes, you know. And uh, so, yeah, that is that's something that I've, I think I've gotten pretty good at that just from 20 years of you know, pitching ideas to, you know, clients and bosses and all that. All right. So if you could send a letter back to your younger self, what's one thing you wish you had known at that point? I'm sorry. I took myself on a test okay. right out of that question. But uh, no, uh, I think outlining and being organized is the way to go because mm -hmm. you feel, and I had to fight this too, because I felt like, well, that's not what an artist does. An artist just sits down and does it right. And that's youthful, thinking, I think that's, you know, overly romantic thinking, because you have to lay it all down. I mean, and lay it out. Otherwise, what you're going to inevitably do, and which I did for those first two books, especially the second one, like I said, is I went down blind alleys and lost months, months of time, you know, oh, because man. when you when you only have two hours a, a day to write, you're not you're making little steps. And so I would spend two months of little steps going in a completely wrong direction, and realize that I had to basically delete all of that or put it in oh. my, put it in oh. my delete file on my, you know, on my computer. I never fully delete anything, but yeah. And yeah. so if I had outlined those books, even, even with kids and even with working full time, I, I would have, I would have written, especially that second one much, much faster for sure. That's good advice. When you're talking about um, the process being like advertising, what about, after the book is out, how much do you have to keep hustling and, and sort of selling it and selling yourself and being part of the process of, of trying to, you know, just let it feels like there's just there's so many different ways to hear about books now and so many different venues. And um, and I guess also on top of that, how did COVID impact that? Because luckily, um, Altogether Now came out just at that respite. Like just Good. in that like two month sweet spot where we were like, yay, no COVID. And then everything kind of started shutting down again. Um, sure. But what do you have to do now to sell it? And is that hard or is that fun? You know, I think that social media has really changed the way that writers uh, sell their work and promote their work afterwards. Because even before COVID, 
the idea of these big, expensive book tours are really, they're pretty rare now. I mean, publishers will send mm-hmm. out the big famous writers that can guarantee to fill up a room in any city in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll go on book tours. You know, they had been going on book tours and they're starting to ease back out into them a bit. Um, but it's tough. So being active on social media is something that your publishers really want you to do. And some people are naturally sort of doing that anyway. I feel like I'm, you know, for being a, a middle-aged dude, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty with it with social media. I'm on all the, all the, you know, the three major platforms. My God, I'm not on like TikTok or anything, but like, you know, the, the three big ones that we all kind of know about, I'm on, I'm on there and I, I try to promote myself and I try to do as much as I can to make myself accessible to readers. And along with COVID, uh, the idea of the virtual book tour and the idea of what I'm doing right now are, have been great for writers. You know, this idea of me sitting here and talking to you two for an hour about writing and about my book, that's something that just writers weren't able to do. I mean, there were like the six famous writers that went on NPR or Terry Gross or something, but that's not mm-hmm. all of us, you know, and this is a yeah. great, this is a great chance uh, to just have a long, long form platform for, you know, talking about books and your writing and, and just you're giving readers kind of a window into who you are and how the book came to be. How there, there have been a couple like really funny books that have been written about the folks who've had to schlep around and try and give those book talks and, and make back the money that their, you know, publishing houses gave them, you know, as an advance or, you know, and some of those worked and some of them really didn't work out all that well. Um, how, how have you enjoyed going out and, and doing a book talk, you know, at say like a smaller place, like a, you know, Bethany books or, you know, someplace like that. Um, is that fun for you? Is, you know, is it more fun to just kind of get to talk about it in smaller ways or in bigger ways? Like what would be your ideal? So ideal, honestly, I, I am a neurotic introvert masquerading, <laughs> masquerading in this extrovert's body, right? I feel like <laughs> Got it. I can pretend I can go into a room and I can take a deep breath and I can really bring it you know, mm-hmm. but I find it very, very, uh, nerve wracking, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I was not nervous as I was, you know, dialing into this conversation, but like if we were having this conversation at a bookstore mm-hmm. in which people were supposed to be attending, I would be a wreck because I'd be like, Oh, well, who's going to come to this? No one's going to come to this. Why would they leave their yeah. house and come to this store? You know? So in-person events for me is something that I might appear to be enjoying, but really inside I'm just, a disaster, you know, because, because so much can go wrong and you're waiting for these people to come. And, but, uh, but this is just, I can do this. You know, I can do this all day. Are you like me? I'm, I'm an introvert. When you, when you get out of one of those sessions, do you just have to go home and like be quiet in a room for three hours? It's like, yeah, uh, girl's daddy's going to go lay on the floor for two hours in the dark. <laughs> and, and don't come in, you know, don't come in unless the house is on fire. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's what's so funny about writers is in the last, you know, I don't know how many years, but let's call it a decade, writers have been expected to be out and talking to the world and promoting. But just by our very nature, we are reclusive mole yeah. people. I mean, the idea that I'm supposed, <laughs> to, I'm, I'm supposed to command a room? My God, I'm terrified. <laughs> I want to wear a cardigan and lay on the floor and drink green tea is what I want to do, you know, but... Uh, so a lot of your books, um, I guess all of your books, have done a really good job of describing what it is to be a parent and um, that process, particularly of little kids. And it's been fun to watch your children grow up through your writing mm-hmm. because you've described kind of kids as they've gotten older. And I guess in the more recent one, as one of your protagonists had smaller children, were you looking back at your girls as they were younger, you know, riding in the back of a Honda minivan, um, falling asleep and and drooling a little bit and wanting a snack? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Was that was that reflective for you or? Ab- absolutely. You- it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's funny when Domestic Violence, my first novel, there's a little girl. My, my main character has a daughter. And I totally mm-hmm. made that up because my daughter, Caroline, wasn't born yet when I did most of the heavy lifting on that book. And uh, so I made it up. And I, in, in retrospect, looking back at that, I feel like I did a good job of capturing you what really I imagined. You really did. I thought you already yeah. had kids. 
nice. uh, what imagining parenthood would, would be like. And uh, so I did a good job with that, I think. Uh, but the rest of the kids in throughout my, my career have, have been based on just thinking about my own kids in different intervals of their lives. And the two twins that you mentioned, the twins you mentioned in um, All Together Now, were modeled after a, my friend Mike has twins. And uh, ah. a boy and a girl. And I, they've been to our house a bunch of times. They've come out to the beach a couple of times, too. And I, I sort of modeled their behavior and off of them. And I also liked the idea that the book, as we talked about earlier, is serious. And there's a lot of serious stuff and there are sad things. The kids really allow me to insert comedy and levity into serious situations. So I, I was definitely using them because that's what kids are so good at because they have no broader context. They can't read a room and realize, wow, everyone is very somber right now. So I better not freak out, you know? So kids <laughs> will just do whatever is they want to do because they're kids, you know? And I thought that that allowed me to maybe ease some of, uh, some of the seriousness and some of the tension uh, from time to time. Well, it's funny because the, um, I like to think of him as the protagonist of all together now did kind of what you said that you do with a lot of sort of snide, not snide, but like jokey asides in the more serious moments um, to alleviate the tension. And, and it worked because I found myself at moments and I read it like I, I read it while I was at the beach and I saved it, which took no small amount of discipline and I felt kind of like what an addict must feel like, you know, because I got my I got it from Amazon and I just kept looking at it thinking, OK, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I'm at the beach. And she I'm ordered it twice, it. by the way. Uh, nice. I ordered it twice and then I ordered six more and I have sent it to close friends because <laughs> nice. it is kind of the signal of like, no, no, this is what we're going to be for one another. Um, and everybody has just loved it because it's it's like a siren call to you know, no, we don't know any billionaires, I don't think. Um, I wish we did. But but it's kind of looking out for one another, right? But, you know, I found myself just just getting very emotional and crying an awful lot. But you alleviated some of that sadness with a really funny aside. And I thought, God, that's what I do. So I'm happy to know that that's also what you do. And that's what your characters do, which made it not a sad book. So I don't know that I would describe it as a sad book. And then you had the children in there doing that as well. Um, so is that, in addition to you doing that, is that also the way you kind of see the world as you, because you're not really a middle-aged guy yet. You're too young to be middle-aged. Um, but as you are getting older um, and, you know, the world is shifting around you, uh, is that kind of the way that you see things like, the world is starting to change a little bit and people are getting older and, you know, there's going to be some sad times, but there's going to be moments that will alleviate it as well. I, I hope to be that. And, you know, I, I feel like I am sometimes get uncomfortable in serious situations and quiet situations. And I will try to uh, derail those situations. And as I said before, that can be an annoying personality trait. But in a book, I think that that can provide a bit of escapism, you know, the, the, I, I like writing books that give readers, readers the chance to escape a bit, but still be grounded in a kind of reality because we're all living through this thing that history you know, books will be written about a hundred years from now, you know, but we have to find the humor and the joy in our lives while still dealing with this situation. And so, you know, the book, I, in the editing process is when I had to officially decide that COVID didn't exist in this book. And when I was writing all together now, I was writing it during, you know, the, the pandemic. And I was just sort of casual, I would casually mention the pandemic as if it had happened years ago in one section. And then I would be sort of pandemic-y in another section. And in reality, it couldn't have been during the pandemic because it would have changed everything. And there would have been masks and it would have been a mess. But Right. I, I, I didn't commit. I was very loosey-goosey with the pandemic. And finally, like the copy editors were the ones at Random House that were like, you have to decide what year it is. You know, you have to decide, what <laughs> like, you have to decide what's going on because you're making references to things in 2020, but you're not making reference to the pandemic. Is this Unless this is some sort of revision, revisionist fiction, you've got to commit to something. And so eventually I, I went to just sort of 
pretending as if the pandemic didn't exist. However, everybody reading it knows that the pandemic exists. And so I feel like it just colors, it, we're all, we're, everything in our lives right now, we're consuming through sort of pandemic colored glasses, you know, everything, everything, you know, it, it's like I watch an episode of Ted Lasso and I'm thinking about the pandemic and how it relates to the pandemic, even though it doesn't exist in Ted Lasso, you know, so. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. This question is for each of you. I'll ask Matt first and then I'll ask Allie. But Matt, what do you hope that your readers will get out of your books? And then Allie, maybe you can talk about what you get out of Matt's books. For me, the ultimate compliment is that you don't want the book to end. So that's always my goal. So some genres of books and some types of books, you're racing to find out what happens or to see who the murderer is or to see if this couple gets together or whatever. And those are fine and those are compelling. But for me, I, the ultimate compliment is I didn't want this book to end. I wanted to live with these people for longer mm -hmm. than I was able to with 300 pages. I, I wanted the book to go on. I could have been reading more and more. That's the ultimate compliment for me, for sure. Allie? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's actually how I feel about it. Because um, you write dialogue that is so smart and so funny and so moving that I I feel like it's dialogue that I have with my friends, but when we're operating on like a really high level, do you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's not it's not right. everyday dialogue, um, but I I want to live with those people. I want to live in that world, and I I don't want it to end. And you also write about parenting in a way that is realistic and not um, sort of gilded, you know, not with this false you know, bravado of, oh, it's all easy and fun and, and pretty. Um, you write about marriage in a way that is also very realistic and about how difficult it is. And I think that that is something that is very hard to do because you are admitting that something that the world fetishizes is not as easy as the wedding industrial complex wants us all to believe <laughs> it is. Uh, and, you know, and so with all of this, what you're doing is saying that people are complicated and within these complications, you know, there also is a tremendous amount of beauty. And so, you know, as somebody who studies political science and writes about political science, we are in a place right now where everybody's really busy taking one data point and hating somebody from for one data point, and you do the exact opposite of that, which is that you take a character and make them very multifaceted and filled with um, pathos and uh, difficulties and everything that people are, because people are more than just one thing. And, um, and that's, you know, that is who your spouse is, that's who your parents are, that's who your children are. Um, and so... Not only do I want to live with your characters, um, I feel like I do live with your characters and you make it fun to live with your characters in a way that sometimes it's not as much fun to live with my characters. <laughs> and that's kind of what life is. So, um, yeah, I never want your books to end because uh, it's just a, a nice reminder that people are, are people are tricky and also great. And that's what makes it, that's what makes life fun. And so you remind us that life is fun. And for that, I am very, very grateful. Oh, well, thank you. That's very, that's very sweet. I think one of the indications that I, you know, kind of fall in love with my characters and don't want to leave them behind is that they keep popping up in my other books. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I love side characters. They're my favorite things to, they're my favorite people to write because you don't have to invest so much time into breaking down their personality and showing them from all these different angles. They can sort of breeze in and out of the book, out of your books. And so, um, and Richard Russo was great at that. He's sort of a model for me oh, in terms I love of Richard Russo. I love him too. And I love the way he handles his side characters because they all feel mm -hmm. very fleshed out, even though they might just appear from time to time. But, um, you know, in all in all of my books, if you read them from start to finish, you will recognize characters from previous books mm -hmm. sort of breezing in and out. And I do that intentionally. I really love doing that because I love the idea that 
while this book, this most recent book is happening, Tom Violet from Domestic Violets is still alive and he's going about his life. Who who knows exactly where he is? Or Andy Carter from my second book is going Mm -hmm. about his life and the people, uh, his brother is still around somewhere. You know, I love the idea that they're all existing in the same world. Um, And so from time to time, they they kind of pop up in, in different books. Well, now that you're talking about characters, can I ask you both one more question? Mm-hmm. Bring it. All right. Uh, Allie, I want you to guess his favorite character from his books. And then I want you to guess her favorite character from your books. I'm thinking that your favorite character is Mitch from Last Couple Standing. My oh, third I do like Mitch so much. I don't know. I think I'm one of those. I think I'm one of those readers who kind of falls in love with your characters. And then I read your next book and I'm like, no, these are the best characters. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. I'm, that's terrible. I want to know who your favorite character is, right. though. So I guess really first. Really guess first, Allie. Who do you think I it is? Know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He says he loves side characters. He loves side characters. I know. Um, I mean, I would. Ooh. Uh, I would think it would. Well, I would want it to be Tom Violet only because he was your first. But that's a romantic. That's like a romantic thought. Like you always love your first, but I don't know. Sure. I've had that. I've had that discussion and I've talked about that a lot too. I don't think domestic violence is the best book I've written. And I don't think Tom Violet is the best character I've written, but I will always have an affection for, you know, them because it was my first, like you said, and that book made me a novelist. Right. But I think my favorite character is Steven, the leader of the Glitter Mafia. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just enjoyed writing him so much. So there is, for those of who haven't read the book, my second book, my main character's mother is a right-wing radio host. And she is very fixated on gay marriage not being allowed. That's like her big issue. And there is a group of gay men called the Glitter Mafia who kind of targets her and tries to prank her and tries to mess up her agenda as much as possible. The leader of the Glitter Mafia in the Omaha, Nebraska division is a guy named Steven. (laughs) And I loved, absolutely loved writing him. He was so much fun. He's alluded to in another, the Glitter Mafia is alluded to later in another book of mine, but Steven, man, he was just, I just let it go with him. He just, he could say whatever he wanted. He could do whatever he wanted. He was just I thought he was funny and I just, I liked him. And someday maybe I'll, I'll include him again. You know. So your last book was on the sadder side, although still had a lot of humor to it. Um, what do you, what are you thinking about for your next book? No pressure. <laughs> well, um, so it's funny that we're having this conversation essentially on the day that I just talked to my editor a couple hours ago. We officially finalized that I'm coming back with my editor and my next book has been approved. And hey, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So the fifth novel will exist. I, you know, it, it's funny. I feel like this house of cards could come crumbling down at any moment and the industry no, can be like that. That's enough of Matthew Norman. But um, you just no. made Allie's year to know there's another no, one coming soon. No, yeah. <laughs> no, we will not let that happen. Trust me. Don't worry. Yeah, about it. I've, I went with a slightly different approach this time because the last book altogether now was pre-sold. It was part of a two book deal. So I mm-hmm. outlined it first. But this time I wanted to just present to my editor um what the book would sound like. So I wrote about 75 or 80 pages of the book. Uh, and I had many outlined those in my own mind a little bit and with like note cards and stuff. But so I submitted that and I submitted a synopsis and now I've been working on a, a more detailed fleshed out outline. So that's what I'm, what I'm doing right now. So I have 80 pages written about 75% of an outline. And uh, it is, it, it's funny. It is really absolutely a reaction to my last book because the last book was serious and sad. This book is, it's my first true kind of love story. I I want it to be very sweet. And I think a lot of my books have had a bitter sweetness to them. I thought it would be fun to take out the bitter part, you know? And, and so it's just, it's a, will these two get together kind of story? Um, about, yeah, about, um, you know, two kind of middle, not quite middle-aged, but two 40 year old divorcees, 
uh, divorcees. I'm not gonna, but um, two divorced people, uh, and <laughs> they they find each other. One of whom is a former uh, drummer for a band that broke up in the '90s, and one is just a music is a music teacher. And they uh, will they won't they get together? So it's uh, it's it's definitely fun. I think it is. I think it might be a romantic comedy. You know. So you're you're writing your book. You're 80 pages in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're when you're in the middle of the process like that. At what point do you first show somebody, and who do you show? Um, my agent, for sure. Agent. Uh, my my agent Jessica and I are are really close. We've been in it uh, together for you know since I wrote a novel before a Domestic Violence that never came out. But she was my agent for that book. Uh, so we've been in it. We've kind of grown up in the industry together. So she is definitely definitely my sounding board. And editors are tricky even editors that you have great relationships with and get your process they're still like the man they're like the boss right and you don't want to present something that you're kind of apologizing for to the editor because that's like mm. showing them you know behind the curtain a little bit more than I'm kind of comfortable with so by the time I show my editor something I really like what I you know but mm-hmm. Jessica my agent is the one that gets the what do you think of this garbage you know that kind of that, <laughs> that those kind of emails that, that she gets you write a lot about music, um, favorite bands, and then also who are your favorite writers to read for fun? Uh, uh, that was a multi-part question. Uh, really so was. that was, that well, was I had two to get questions. Because Lawrence keeps interrupting me. It's two questions. Masquerading as one question. We'll go with the, totally the music true. one mm-hmm. first. I absolutely. I'm just like a music person. I love it. And unfortunately, I don't play music at all because when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with sports like some dumb little kid who I thought was going to be like a pro baseball player or something. And so I was obsessed with sports. And so I didn't take piano lessons and all that. In retrospect, as a, you know, 44 year old man, I wish like my wife can sit at the piano and just play it. Like she can just like, if you put, she's a rainbow in front of my wife, she just plays it. I mean, it's amazing. Um, So I I don't do that at all, but I love music and I love uh, all kinds of music. I mean, my favorite band, my band is U2. I love them. I've seen them in concert 23 times. When I, yeah, that's a lot. When I used to think that was cool, like I would proudly say it. Now I'm sort of like, oh, like, like <laughs> on your yeah, breath. Yeah, it's like oh, yeah, I've seen them in twenty three times. But um, so I, I love you too, and I love a band out of Chicago called Wilco that isn't quite as, uh, oh yeah, isn't quite as commercial as you two. Obviously, I mean, who is? But um, but I also love uh, the Beatles are probably as much as I love you too. And they're sort of my band. Like I feel like the Beatles are like the world's band, you know, mm-hmm. and I love them and I love the Rolling Stones. I really love the sixties and seventies. I mean, I was only, I only existed for three years during the seventies and I didn't have any idea what was the hell was going on. But going back to seventies music now is just amazing. Like the Rolling Stones, all four Beatles on their own, uh, Fleetwood Mac. I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, it's an amazing era. So I listen to a lot of 70s music and having little kids has been great because especially girls because i i'm i'm now able to kind of embrace you know taylor swift and olivia rodrigo with them and they love it they just really really enjoy it and they're girls and so when i was you know i'd play music for them when they were younger and they'd be like do you have any music that isn't boy music and what they meant <laughs> what they meant was just dude singing right and so i was like oh god they're on to something so i was like okay well let's you know i would play like um you know debbie harry for them or something they'd be like okay well that's all right you know and then i we found taylor swift and they're like this is it daddy this is this is where we're at I mean, they, <laughs> they love taylor swift and uh, i've just been able to smart kids just kind of expand my musical horizons and it's been fun to watch taylor swift essentially grow up with my, Mm -hmm. I mean, she has, she went, I mean, she became world famous as a young pop star. And then she said, well, I can't be a young pop star my whole life. So she started to mature and her music started to mature. So I have a much respect for uh, Tay Tay at the uh, Norman house. uh, (laughs) We're we're big fans. We we like following, uh, following her career, but uh, yeah. So I, I, I just absolutely love music and it, always shows up in my books just because I'm listening to it while I'm writing and it's just such a part of my life and therefore it kind of becomes parts of my characters lives too because you know music is great for sure this question comes from Neil Connolly he wants to know uh, if you could give your pinky finger to have written one book any book ever by somebody else who would it have been I think that 
it would be, I, I think The Catcher in the Rye is maybe not my favorite book of all time, but it's undeniable that it is like a book that has spanned generations and people have talked about. Writing a book that had that kind of cultural impact would mm-hmm. be, would really be something. I think that would be very overwhelming, maybe in a good way, or maybe it would turn me into a crazy person. I have no idea. But, <laughs> <laughs> but writing something that just kind of changed the world would be crazy. It's almost like saying, well, if you could be in a band, who would it be? Well, the Beatles, because they changed the world. I mean, my God. Right. But, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I would say Catcher in the Rye to the, is the answer to that question with the caveat that it probably isn't my favorite book of all time. But, sure. you know, why not, sure. why not go big, right? <laughs> so favorite authors? Um, definitely Richard Russo mm-hmm. and definitely Nick Hornby. Um, oh, for sure. yeah. I really love, I really love Nick Hornby. There's an approachability to his writing that I really love. And as much as I love Richard Russo, sometimes you're reading Richard Russo and you're like, I am reading a great writer. Like I am reading yes. a literary piece of, thi- of, of a thing. Right. But with Nick Hornby, there's, the, there's this, uh, there's this very casual, relationship he has with the reader and he's speaking in a very plain spoken way and then he'll hit you with something big you know and it's like that i think that's an interesting way to approach writing it's just being like you know just kind of lull the reader along and then hit them you know so and there's there's an inherent readability to his writing that i that i really like Uh, another writer that i really really like is jamie attenberg um I, I like her very much. And uh, Curtis Sittenfeld is a fantastic mm. writer that I, I kind of idolize a little bit. And we've, we've gone back and forth a couple of times on Twitter because we have the same we're at, at the same publishing house. And it's always a thrill when uh, uh, Curtis enters my feed in any, any way. But um, what I love about her is she can write big, involved novels, but she's also a fantastic short story writer which is mm-hmm. something that I, I, I have this fantasy of writing short stories, which I haven't done since grad school, like literally 16 years ago. But uh, someday I want to just do the Curtis uh, thing and you know, write a short story or two. Um, okay. So you like all of that. Do you, do you gravitate towards fiction almost all the time? Do you, um, do you delve into nonfiction or really just all- kind of hang out in fiction world? I almost never read nonfiction and I, I guess I wish I did, you know, I, I, will read like, you know, creative nonfiction like David Sedaris and Sloan, mm. you know, uh, Crosley and stuff. Cause those feel almost like, I don't know, some, something about whatever my emotional reaction is to those writers is my emotional reaction to fiction for whatever reason. I don't have a much else to say about why that is, but it just feels like it. But I feel like, like, as I said before, I'm 44 years old. Let's say I've got 50 more years, right? And if I read 35, 45 books a year, you know, 35 times 45, I mean, this is not an endless number of books, right? And I just love novels so much that I I always just want to, like, I'll just read, I'll just read novels because, you know, there's, this this party isn't going to last forever, right? So I got to get as many in as I can, you know. (laughs) <laughs> speaking of death i'd like to bring it down a little bit the fact that we are all someday going to die you guys and we can't read forever so you know <laughs> get the good stuff while you can <laughs> our last episode was on funerals so there's a theme here so, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> all right matthew norman let's do a lightning round here so you ready i'm in let's do it all right how do you unwind reading or smut tv reading <laughs> uh let's see um worst review you've ever or, or reviewer review that, that got you the maddest or really got under your skin when my first book came out i reviewers have typically been just pretty kind to me to be honest for whatever reason but somebody in canada a reviewer and i can't remember the person's name or the city but for a newspaper in Canada, just absolutely destroyed domestic violence. And I was just, it was a body blow. I was wounded by it. I didn't have a thick, I wasn't dead inside yet as a writer. Like I didn't have a thick skin. <laughs> and, and I remember it, I read it the morning that we were having a party at my wife and I were having a party at the house for the book. And all these people were coming in and I was like, why are you even here? This book sucks, you know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. so that person, that person in Canada ruined my book party. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Worst question you've ever been asked in an interview, and I hope it wasn't in this one. I have an answer, and I feel almost like a jerk saying it because it's not a mean-spirited question or a bad question or, or an inherently difficult question. It's just a question that I think very few writers have an interesting answer to. When people ask me how much of my work is autobiographical, I'm always huh. just like, eh, I mean, you know, some is, some isn't. It's all kind of emotionally autobiographical, but for the most part, I make it up. You know, it's, it's a question that I always sort of have to, always have to kind of take a, take a breath before I answer because I, I, I just, it's not a typical, terribly interesting answer. I don't think a lot of writers have much to say about that. All right. Two more lightning round questions. Uh, favorite question to answer in interviews. I love talking about music. When you guys talked about the music stuff, I, I sometimes feel dumb talking about literature and writers that I like because I always feel like I'm forgetting something or saying something not interesting. But music is like, oh, I, I feel passionate about it and I can, I can love it for what it is without being hampered by being a creator of it, you know? So mm -hmm. I can just like the brilliance of the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or U2 or whomever is so exciting for me because it doesn't make me feel bad about my own abilities because I'm not trying to do it. So it's just like I can listen to the chorus of Angie by the Rolling Stones and be like, that's the greatest thing ever, you know, without, without, without being like, oh, well, I could never do that because I'm a failure. That you is know? a great song, by the way. It's <laughs> the, the best, yeah. Uh, all right, last uh, lightning round question. Uh, question you were afraid we were going to ask you, but we didn't. The autobiographical question, for sure, because I was afraid you were going to ask that, and I was going to have to drone on for five minutes about the, yeah, some is, some is, you know, so I'm glad that didn't come up. Oh, I got one more question, sorry. Um, is most of your work autobiographical? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank, you for, I've, no, I've thank you for completing the lightning round. That's right. <laughs> I've, lived, I've lived quite a life, and it's all autobiographical. <laughs> it all happened. All right, and I'll give you the last question here with your favorite author, Matthew Norman. Oh, it's just, this has just been so, this really has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and also for your work. Um, if this, is this the life uh, you see yourself living for the next, you gave yourself 50 years. I like that. Um, so 50 let's give him 60. Let's say 60. 60. 60. You're 104. Yeah. You're 104. And um, you're living in this gigantic house in Fenwick and um, your wife has called up uh, at this point. Let's see. Who was your, who was your favorite? Okay. Uh, called up the lead singer from Wilco on mm -hmm. the, on the TV to say, sure. yep, there you are. Um, and you've written these wonderful books and your kids are all there and you look back and you think it's a pretty good life being a novelist. This is, this is pretty good. Yeah, I think that it is. And I, this is what I wanted to do. And so I certainly can't complain about anything because I this is it's like in the mafia. I think Tony Soprano says once to all of his mafia friends, this is the life we have chosen. And so whenever I'm dealing with, uh, you know, rejection or not getting reviewed in this publication or whatever, just the little rejections that come along with being a novelist. I'm like, well, this is the life I have chosen. This is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm in the fight, you know? And so I feel like this is, is what I imagine and what I sort of planned, planned to, uh, plan to do. So no complaints, you know? Well, now that I know that this is the right way to, um, to address you, Matt Norman, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your work. Well, thank you. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you 
Till we meet again Take a liking to you.